Well, uh, Jim, thanks very much for introduction, ladies and gentlemen. I'm, uh, I don't think I've ever done a, a political meeting in Drimple Hall before, uh, but I'm in uh, Drimple Hall just about every year for the, uh, the Junior Arts Pantomime. Now, any similarity between the pantomime <laughs> and the meeting of the Scottish Cabinet is purely coincidental. But uh, the, the importance, I think, of the Cabinet Summer Tours has been growing every year, and, and the theory behind it is a very simple one. Uh, I mean, this year we've been uh, north to Shetland, we've been uh, south to uh, Hoyk. Uh, last week we were in Campbelltown, uh, and today we're in the Brock. So we've been north, south, west, uh, and east. And the, the determination behind it is to, to demonstrate that we run a, a government and a, a parliament uh, not for Edinburgh, uh, but for all of Scotland. And the Summer Cabinet Tour is the opportunity uh, that folk get left uh, uh, north, south, east, west uh, to ask questions to the, uh, the, the Cabinet members. And it also provides a, an opportunity for the Cabinet members to, to visit things locally, important projects. Uh, I think thus far uh, in the last couple of days, the uh, ministers and secretaries responsible here have had 21 visits uh, around uh, the Brock and then the in the northeast corner. Uh, yesterday I went to Fraserburgh Harbour, for example, to see the, the work being done to the deepening project, an £8 million project that will uh, enhance the facilities in the harbour very considerably. I also took the opportunity to announce a further £3 million of support for the, the storm damage of the last winter storms for the east coast ports. There is a, a picture that the, the commissioners have of uh, three hours after the December storm, where the, the wall of water is above the lighthouse. <laughs> uh, so uh, obviously that wreaked damage in the East Coast ports, uh, and therefore it's important and appropriate that there's a, a further enhancement of funds to make sure the repairs uh, are carried forward. I also went to Banff and Buckingham College. I opened a new welding facility in the college. Uh, I was saying at the, at the reception in the college last night that uh, one of the, the students, the trainees, said to me that uh, one of the new welding machines, there's only 22 like it in the world, uh, and there's one of them here in the Broch. And he added, and there's Nain and Peter Heed. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's a fantastic uh, facility. And today I've announced 100 extra places for the engineering course in the new engineering department in the new campus uh, in the Fraserburgh College. Uh, also announced a, a feasibility study. It is only a feasibility study at this stage, but it's particularly interesting for a, a residential accommodation for students. Now, the, the idea and the, the interest behind this is that Fraserburgh, along with Aberdeen College, as part of the new Northeast College, is going to be part of uh, the Oil and Gas Academy, the new energy skills training facility. And obviously, right now, you can't get uh, accommodation in Aberdeen for for love nor money, or you might be able to get it for money, but you kind of get it for love in Aberdeen uh, at the present moment. And therefore, we're attracting new students into the industry to take advantage of the new engineering facilities, the new welding college, and new folk are coming. Then it gives the potential, at least, to study whether a residence, uh, a student residence, might be appropriate in Fraser. And if that happens, of course, it would be like having a, another factory in the town. It would be a substantial economic uh, enhancement. It is a feasibility study at this stage. But nonetheless, with the great things in terms of the, the leisure centre and the, uh, the harbour enhancements that are happening in this town, then let's look at it positively, because it could have substantial economic advantage. And of course, there's an interesting point here, because when the, the new North East College was proposed, a lot of folks were saying, well, wouldn't that mean that Fraserburgh 
withers on the vine, is on a limb, but exactly the opposite is happening with the new welding centre, the new engineering places, and potentially a residential course to take advantage of that fantastic new college campus that I had the great pleasure of opening just last year. Now, the, the students I met yesterday, <coughs> the ones doing the, the welding courses, uh, and uh, the young lady got a, a furlough, incidentally. She was starting a course this morning, uh, and the principal, given that she was going to the reception last night, took, uh, uh, took kindness on her and said that she could start at half past nine this morning, <laughs> uh, as opposed to nine o'clock, which is what qualifies in the strict academic environment of, the, of Fraserborough for, uh, for giving her a furlough. But these, these youngsters learning the skills, uh, when they can look forward in the energy industries of Scotland, to a lifetime of employment. Uh, I'm doing a speech at Oil & Gas uh, UK's dinner for Offshore Europe tonight. And the theme of Offshore Europe this year is the next 50 years. The next 50 years uh, of oil and gas. And it's now accepted. Well, just a few years ago, folk were saying, oh my goodness, oil and gas is almost finished. It'll be here today and gone tomorrow. Now there's a general acceptance and understanding that we're talking at least of another half century. So the students going through that welding centre in the Brock College this now, if they so choose to go into the, the energy industries, oil and gas or renewables, they could spend their entire career, if they so choose, in the waters uh, around Scotland. And that's an important aspect as we think about the skills uh, for the future. Now the questions, as Jim rightly said, will range far and wide. I hope there's many local issues come up as well. Uh, but I'm going to focus for my remarks on next year's referendum, the most important decision uh, that Scotland will make for more than 300 years. Now, in the course of this summer at the various cabinet meetings uh, and also speeches at, at NIG and the commentary, and actually I went to the Isle of Man to make a speech, I, I, I've been talking about how Scotland is currently part of six unions. Now, the union I want and we want or we suggest and propose that Scotland becomes independent from is the political and economic ties that bind us to the Westminster Parliament, and I want to talk about that today. But there are five other unions, the Union of the Crowns, the Social Union, the Defence Union through NATO, the Currency Union, and the European Union, which we are part of and which we suggest should stay, albeit with changes and improvements, but nonetheless should stay. The social union, for example, that's the ties of family and friendship that connect the people of these islands. They'll endure regardless of uh, the choices of governments. The other unions, the Union of the Crowns, uh, the uh, other ones I mentioned, we suggest will stay, change, but stay. Now, of course, it is open, and this is the essential point of independence, for other parties uh, to put forward different choices for an independent Scotland. That is the whole point about Scottish independence. It's the right of people in Scotland to choose their own future. Uh, but today I want to talk about the SNP's perspective. The SNP view is that we could use the powers of independence to make these other associations work more effectively for Scotland and for our neighbours. For example, like 16 other independent nations throughout the Commonwealth, we propose to retain the monarchy. But the people of Scotland will draft a new constitution. The UK currently, incidentally, is the only country in the Commonwealth and the only country in Europe without a written constitution. The only one. All of the other 16 of the 
Her Majesty the Queen's domains all have a written constitution as well as a constitutional monarchy. The UK is a constitutional monarchy without having a written constitution. And a constitution is vital. It sets out the rights and liberties, protection of essential freedoms of the people. I believe a written constitution can enshrine for all time the greatest Scottish tradition of all, the unshakable Scottish tradition that sovereignty lies with the people, that sovereignty lies with the people of Scotland. We propose in the SNP, within the currency union, we'll keep the pound sterling. And why shouldn't we keep the pound sterling? The Bank of England, incidentally, was founded by a Scot. Uh, and the pound is as much our currency uh, as England's currency. And it's certainly not George Osborne's currency uh, to own. So we can keep the pound, but we'll gain powers over taxation, borrowing, welfare, economic regulation, and energy markets, the very stuff of what makes a country prosperous. We propose to remain in the European Union, but with our own representatives in the Council of Ministers putting forward Scotland's priorities, as opposed to often having them neglected by Westminster representatives. Not a new phenomenon, incidentally. For many people in this community, uh, the phrase in the civil service memo from the early 1970s, which was revealed 30 years later under the 30-year rule, talking about the negotiations of entry into the common market at that stage, when it said, in light of Britain's wider European interests, they, the Scottish fishermen, are expendable. Unquote. That was the quotation on entry into the common market, an indication, and the neglect of Scottish interests continues to this day, for example, in the recent negotiations in the common agricultural uh, policy. And we'll still be members, as we propose, of NATO's defence union. Now, the United Kingdom government have suggested that our continued membership of NATO might be problematic, <laughs> but it's actually a ridiculous notion to suggest that. That's part of Project Fear. Now, Project Fear is the self-description of the No campaign. I was listening to a radio interview the other day, and uh, the radio interviewer said, I think to Nicola Sturgeon, actually, uh, all it's unwise to challenge Nicola Sturgeon in a, a point of fact or detail for any radio interview, but there was a radio interview with a temerity to challenge Nicola Sturgeon, saying, why are you describing them as Project Fear? It was actually they who described themselves as Project Fear as they did to a Sunday Herald journalist. And you can see them, imagine the thing, you know, we're Project Fear, we're going to scare the pants off the Scottish people. They described themselves as Project Fear. The Ministry of Defence, if we look at the examples of Project Fear just over the summer months, the Ministry of Defence mused that they could annex the nuclear base at Faslane as a Crown territory if Scotland voted for independence. Uh, that lasted about two hours until uh, it was contradicted uh, by Downing Street. Then the United Kingdom government argued earlier this year that the UK's AAA status was crucial to Scotland's economic prospects, until, of course, the UK itself lost AAA status just a few weeks later. Uh, then they claimed that mobile phone charges, this was absolute classic, it's only about a month ago, they claimed that mobile phone charges would undoubtedly go up in an independent Scotland. And they made that claim on the very day to almost the hour that the European Commission announced that roaming charges were to be abolished across the European continent. <laughs> uh, then they said that the uh, United Kingdom embassies, if Scotland came independent, the UK embassies would no longer promote Scottish whiskey. Well, you know, I'm sure it would be an ultimate blow to the multi-billion 
pound whisky industry to find out that whisky was no longer being promoted at embassy parties. Uh, I was in uh, Campbelltown last week and I allowed myself the old Andy Stewart song, you know, how nice it would be if the whisky were free and the embassies full up to the brim. Uh, so I, I rather reckon that the whisky industry will get by. Incidentally, they actually charge the Scottish Government for using UK embassies to promote whisky at the present moment. <laughs> they actually charge uh, for it. And then there's the, the notion of border posts at Berwick, whereas the reality is there's a common travel area between the Republic of Ireland, the United Kingdom, and the Channel Islands and Isle of Man, which has been in existence since 1923. And that is despite the fact that the Channel Islands and Isle of Man are not even part of the European Union. So amid this succession of examples of Project FEAR, uh, I would say the Chancellor of the Exchequer has been at it again today. Well, I'm not actually sure if he's at it again today because he's not making the speech till tomorrow, but yesterday they briefed it to the papers and it's in the papers today. And what it says is if Scotland becomes independent, according to George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, then in 30 years' time, in 30 years' time, people might be 4% worse off in terms of wages in 30 years' time. Now, that's a very interesting concept. So I had a wee look at the paper to see on which the Chancellor of the Exchequer was going to judge this extraordinary forecast over the next 30 years. Now, apparently it's because the USA and Canada have less trade than they would have if Canada were part of the United States of America. Well, I immediately think George Osborne should jet off to Canada and tell the people of Canada that they should immediately stop being independent because in 30 years' time, they might be 4% better off if they become part of the United States of America. But the only trouble with that argument, of course, is if you look over the last five years, Canada has become top of the OECD, the rich countries' rankings, in terms of recovery from economic recession. Better record than the United States of America and a much better record than the United Kingdom, which has come second bottom. So I would imagine if George Osborne, with that glittering success rate of being second bottom of the growth league, goes to the country which is top of the growth league and says, our analysis says you must stop being an independent country because in 30 years' time, you'll be 4% worse off, he'll get pretty short shift. And we should give him the same short shift in Scotland. There is another aspect to George Osborne's record, of course. 4% over 30 years. In his first two years, between 2010 and 2012, he managed to reduce average wages, medium wages, by 7%. Not 4%, by 7%. And since they were reduced also over the last year in real terms, it's a fair bet that in three years, he's achieved more than double, as Chancellor, what he projects over 30 years for an independent Scotland. And you don't need a crystal ball to know what happened in the last three years of George Osborne, you just need to look at the shaky books in the UK Treasury. So what I'm suggesting to you, when we get these episodes of Project Fear, then we should do what I think people are increasingly doing. The first time you hear it, you go, yeah, let's analyze that and let's get an answer to it. The second time you hear it, you should effectively shrug your shoulders. And the third time you hear this nonsense, you should start to laugh at it, because that's exactly what it is, a ridiculous notion from posturing politicians who have a track record that no chancellor in the world would want to boast about. So the reality is very different. 
we can achieve our political and economic independence and we can maintain and retain the other associations with the other countries of these islands. But the political and economic independence is what I want to speak about this afternoon. That's what we seek independence from. Because we don't want decisions on the economy, on welfare and foreign affairs uh, made by a government that we didn't elect and don't support. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, 58 years old. Now, I can see you all at the back looking and saying, surely not. <laughs> he doesn't <he> look it. <laughs> ah, exactly. <laughs> I know you're agreeing with me. <laughs> well, I'm 58 years old. For two-thirds of my life, two-thirds of my life, Scotland has been ruled by governments that we didn't elect. Two-thirds of that 58 years. And I think that's no longer democratically acceptable for this country. And it's not just democratically unacceptable, it's socially and economically unacceptable. Uh, an independent Scotland would never have participated in an illegal invasion of Iraq. Can you tell the Chancellor of the Exchequer that I've already dished his arguments uh, about the 4%, so tell him, dear George, we'll deal with you the morning. You might say hello, George. <laughs> So it's not politically acceptable, it's not democratically acceptable, and it's certainly not socially and economically acceptable. An independent Scotland never have participated in an illegal invasion of Iraq. An independent Scotland never have introduced something as socially regressive as the bedroom tax. Now, last Thursday in the House of Commons, thanks uh, largely to the intervention of the SNP implied Cymru MPs, we avoided a headlong rush to engagement in Syria by the skin of our teeth. But even at that time, at that moment, the Commons rejected a, a positive amendment supported by the overwhelming majority of Scottish MPs for finding a route to solution for the United Nations. Well, I would submit, as an independent Scotland, we look to play a constructive part in the international stage, working with our allies to help victims of conflict, contributing to conflict resolution, ensuring that war criminals and people who use chemical weapons are war criminals are properly indicted where they should be before the International Criminal Court. I said uh, a passing mention there of the, the bedroom tax. In 1748, not long after the Treaty of Union, the United Kingdom government introduced a ludicrous tax in Scotland called the window tax. Now, those of you have been to places like the, the old town in Edinburgh, you can actually still see the results of the, the window tax because people did the obvious thing. They immediately started bricking up their windies and said, we're not paying the tax because we've got no windies to play it on. Now, my submission is <clears throat> the uh, bedroom tax is as ludicrous, indeed more ludicrous, than the window tax was uh, in 1748. The window tax became famous because it was ridiculous. But actually, the bedroom tax, if you think about it, is worse because at least the window tax had some sort of relationship ability to pay. In other words, the bigger hoose you had, the more windows you had, therefore the more tax you were meant to pay. The bedroom tax is exactly the opposite. It is designed exclusively to hit people who are short of money on lower incomes. The bedroom tax is a perfect example of the current democratic deficit in Scotland. Not just because it's unjust, very unjust, 80% of the households affected have somebody with a disability in that household. But just because it's legislation that's been passed 
by a Parliament where Scotland's problems and interests weren't part of the priority. The bedroom tax was driven by rising rental and housing benefit costs in London and the southeast of England. Not here in Scotland, but in London and the southeast of England. But in Scotland, 60,000 people will be penalised unless they can move into single-room accommodation, despite the fact that there only is a supply in the whole country of 20,000 single-room socially rented houses. So 60,000 people have somehow to get themselves into 20,000 houses if they are to avoid the bedroom tax. I don't believe that any political party, any political party, in control of the parliament of an independent Scotland would ever have introduced something as socially regressive as the bedroom tax. Now, tomorrow is the, the first day of the new parliamentary session. I'll be setting out the, the bills that we're going to introduce into the Scottish Parliament over the next year. But I want briefly just to look back at the Scottish Parliament over its first 14 years. And I want to do it in a way which is not about the current SNP administration, which I'm very proud of, uh, but it's about all of the administrations over that period of time. You see, the first Parliament from 1999 to 2003 established the right to free personal care for the elderly something that currently helps over 77,000 people uh, in Scotland. Uh, the second parliament took bold action to tackle Scotland's health inequalities. The ban on smoking in public places was led by the Scottish Parliament. The third parliament, the Parliament of Minority SNP government, introduced free university tuition. We went back to the tradition in Scotland of, of <coughs> higher education allocated by people's talents and abilities as opposed to allocated by their ability to pay. This parliament is seeing leading action <clears throat> to tackle Scotland's relationship with alcohol, legislation to reform, to transform early years education and care. So these are achievements of the whole parliament over these last uh, 13 years. And virtually nobody, nobody I know of, well, or maybe just Tam Dale actually, but apart from Tam Dale, Virtually nobody I know of now wants to go back to a situation where there was no parliament in Scotland, which couldn't have done these things over these last 14 years. At the same time, there's been a, a strong emphasis on policies to help revive the economy. In Aberdeenshire, more than 5,000 businesses now benefit from the small business bonus. That's 45% of all businesses in Aberdeenshire have the benefit of paying either reduced or no business rates in terms of helping them sustain their activities and grow for the future. And the point I'm making is these achievements don't belong to any one political party. They command support uh, across the parliament. And they commanded support across the parliament, whether it be free personal care for the elderly or free tuition for youngsters going to university and college, uh, because they reflected the Scottish ethos uh, of fairness in terms of the allocation of public spending. So although I would submit the Scottish Parliament has introduced measures to make society more cohesive, we live in a state which is one of the, and becoming one of the most unequal in the developed world. By next year, the UK government's cut to welfare spending will total £2 billion in 2014-2015. And it's very important to understand that the vast bulk of that reduction is not taken from people who are out of work. It's actually taken from people who are in work but on lower wages. But last year, the same government announced 350 million more of spending in the next stage of the Trident missile systems renewal. That money is barely one third of 1% of the estimated 
100,000 million lifetime costs of a new Trident system uh, if it's replaced. And my question here today in the Fraser was a very simple one. How can any government choose to embark uh, on an expenditure of £100 billion to renew Europe's largest concentration of weapons of mass destruction while implementing socially regressive policies such as the bedroom tax uh, across the country? Across Europe, nations such as Denmark, Sweden, Norway are among the 10 most equal countries in the OECD. The UK is now at the bottom of the league. So the point I'm making is under devolution, with the resumption of the Scottish Parliament, we can frame policies which try to express Scottish aspirations, can make things a bit better, but we're always going to be working against the head wind of policies which are implemented from Westminster. With independence, decisions about Scotland's future will be taken, absolutely, and this is the most important point of all, will be taken by the people who live and work in Scotland the people who will always make the best decisions about the future of this country. Now, I want to, in closing, outline just four positive choices an independent Scotland could make. And these are just four out of hundreds. The real point is that we'd have the ability to make these choices. I was saying earlier on that uh, the title of the UK Oil and Gas uh, Conference this year, the Offshore Europe Conference, uh, is oil and gas the next 50 years. And it's highly appropriate in a whole range of ways because it is 50 years since oil and gas was discovered uh, in the North Sea. Uh, in my estimation, the squandering of uh, oil wealth is one of the greatest pieces of economic mismanagement in this nation's history. A generation ago, go back to that time when oil and gas was being discovered and Scotland was more prosperous than our neighbours across the North Sea and Norway. Substantially more prosperous. The, uh, both countries discovered oil and gas in similar quantities but now Norway is over 60% more prosperous than Scotland. We know that there are decades of more oil and gas and therefore more oil and gas revenues to come from the waters around Scotland. Therefore, the time is now to establish an oil fund, creating stable public finances and ensuring that natural resources benefit future generations as they have done and did in Norway in the late 1990s. Second choice relates to Scotland's higher and further education system. People come to study in Scotland from all around the world. Now, instead of discouraging that, as the UK government is currently doing, why not encourage it? Independence would allow us to attract even more students and skilled workers to come to Scotland. A third choice would be to use taxation powers to boost and benefit Scotland's competitive position. For example, as studies have shown, if we were to reduce or eliminate air passenger duty, it would encourage far more direct links to Scotland. PricewaterhouseCoopers have found that reducing or abolishing air passenger duty would more than pay for itself, provided we had control over the additional revenues that came in from additional tourism, from additional spending, from additional spending which generates VAT, and so on and so forth. And the reason for that is obvious. The increased receipts from other taxes would more than compensate for the reduction in air passenger duty. Now, it is the absolute holy grail. I used to be an economist. And it's the absolute holy grail of economists and therefore of politicians to actually be able to reduce a tax but still increase revenues. And here is the opportunity in air passenger duty to do it. And for Fraserborough, which is 40 miles from Aberdeen Airport but 600 miles from Heathrow, the benefit 
of more direct flights to international destinations, it would be particularly important. It would mean taking one flight as opposed to two flights. Benefits folk in the country and benefits more people coming to uh, the country. And as well as creating a more prosperous Scotland, I think it's important that we create a more socially just Scotland. So my fourth choice would be to abolish the bedroom tax and establish a welfare system which needs Scotland needs and values, which makes work pay uh, without subjecting people with disability to humiliation in terms of assessment. Ladies and gentlemen, the six unions I've spoken about across this summer show an independent Scotland could maintain and indeed strengthen its relationship with neighbouring countries, with Europe, with countries from across the globe. <laughs> the, the political and economic independence that we seek means we can renew and recast these relationships, but also make better decisions for Scotland. There was a, a study earlier this year, the, the Scottish Social Attitude Study, which asked a, a simple question. It asked whether people in Scotland trusted the Scottish Government to act in Scotland's best interests or whether they trusted the UK Government. 71% trusted the Scottish Government, 18% trusted the UK Government. I think that 18% is quite a high figure in my estimation, but nonetheless that was the figure in the Social Attitude Survey. It's not surprising there's already a clear majority of people who want the Scottish Parliament to control taxation and welfare. By September of next year, I hope and believe that will turn into a majority of support for independence. Uh, the poll in the Press and Journal today suggests that this process might be going a bit faster than I anticipated, but the key thing is to win that majority by next September. A vote for independence is a vote to complete the decision-making powers of our Parliament. With independence, we can make our own decisions, not just mitigate other people's mistakes. We can deliver for Scotland, not lobby in London. We can make that welfare system make work pay without reducing people to penury or despair. We can use our tax powers to encourage innovation, investment, job creation across all parts of the country. And we can use the powers of independence to create a fairer and more just society. Thank you very much.